Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening and welcome everyone. We're so delighted that you all braved the threatening weather and made it here this evening to join us. Thank you so much. We appreciate your company uh, and your support for this event. We're delighted that you have joined us this evening for this 20th anniversary celebration for Eleanor Roosevelt College and for the Helen Edison lecture series, lecture that accompanies it. Our talk this evening is an example of how UCSD's colleges can enrich the undergraduate experience here at this university. At Roosevelt College, our goal is to educate students who are prepared to become effective, engaged global citizens. For us, that global citizenship begins with a firm academic knowledge base. It progresses to capable and inspired analysis, and it ends with informed action. Our guest tonight will guide us through her analysis of the contemporary struggle for democracy and human rights in Africa. Tomorrow, the college will celebrate the many ways in which our graduates are taking the academic knowledge and translating it into public service in their careers or in their private lives. This year, the college is focusing on the theme of human rights. That theme begins by affirming Eleanor Roosevelt's role in the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. She was the U.S. delegate to the United Nations, the, a member of Committee 3 that began the drafting of that declaration, and by all accounts, she was, her patience and perseverance were very instrumental in securing not only the final compromise language of the declaration, but ultimately its adoption by the U.N. General Assembly in December of 1948. So as we celebrate our 20th anniversary for Eleanor Roosevelt College, we are simultaneously celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we are, our goal is not only to celebrate its ad adoption, but also to help our students understand how yet, how far we, yet how far we are from securing its full promise. We were thrilled when Charlene Hunter-Galt accepted our invitation to speak here tonight. She compels our attention to a part of the world which has covered relatively little in the U.S. media. And yet here in San Diego, we all really should know much more about Africa. We have strong, large communities of Eritrean, Somali, and Ethiopian refugees who are our neighbors. Moreover, Africa not only invites, Africa really requires us to consider both sides of the Universal Declaration. That is, in Africa, we have an opportunity to look at the civil and political rights for which the West advocated, and the economic, social, and cultural rights for which the East and the Southern countries were strong advocates. By better understanding Africa, we can expand our vision of human rights. We can look past elections and ballot boxes to the need for food and shelter, employment, health care, 
defense of religious differences, and equity among ethnic and cultural communities. The other wonderful thing about Charlene Hunter Galt's acceptance of our invitation is that her book, New News Out of Africa, challenges us to examine our preconceptions about Africa and about ourselves, to see the continent's progress and promise, and to understand our own prejudices. Because this is our reunion weekend, we thought it would be wonderful if a Roosevelt College alum could introduce Charlene Hunter Galt. So it's my privilege to introduce you to TJ Talley. TJ graduated from ERC in 2006 in, after four years of extraordinary leadership here in the college. He was an honors student and he was a leader in his class. He was an orientation leader, a senior orientation leader, a resident advisor, a campus tour guide. He told me this afternoon he was everything but a member of the student council at ERC. Nothing against the student council, he just didn't make it that far. He studied in South Africa his junior year and returned to complete an honors thesis here in history and graduated as a provost scholar, which is the highest academic award that we give a student at graduation. Graduating seniors also voted him as the ERC ambassador, the person in his class who best exemplified the Eleanor Roosevelt College spirit. After earning a master's degree in history here at UCSD, he taught two years at Francis Parker School and before, st before starting a PhD program at the University of Illinois last fall. TJ came from Illinois just for this event tonight and we're very grateful to him for doing that. <laughs> He's currently working on a project which examines 19th century missionaries and their relationship with the predominant settler society in Victorian South Africa. So please join me in welcoming T.J. Talley. That's a lot to follow. <laughs> All right. Um, first off, it is my distinct honor and privilege as both an Eleanor Roosevelt College alumnus and as a student of South African history to introduce Charlene Hunter Galt. As one of television's premier journalists, Charlene Hunter Galt has made a success of challenging convention with her fresh insights on issues both close to home and of an important global impact. As CNN's former Johannesburg bureau chief and correspondent, Hunter Galt introduced viewers to the people of the diverse continent of Africa a place she once called one of the greatest challenges that we in the media face. She spent 20 years at PBS as national correspondent for the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer, where she also anchored the award-winning news magazine on human rights, rights and wrongs. Ms. Hunter Galt is the author of New News Out of Africa, What Africa Means to Me, and In My Place, a memoir of her role in the civil rights movement as the first black woman admitted to the University of Georgia. Ms. Hunter Galt's life story reflects more than her incredible work reporting on the African continent. However, in addition to her civil rights work in Georgia and through her own life, Ms. Hunter Galt began her career as the first African-American reporter for The New Yorker before going on to serve as the Harlem bureau chief for The New York Times. She's also written articles for Essence, Ms., Life, and O, oh, The Oprah Magazine. The recipient of numerous honors, including two Emmy Awards and two Peabody Awards, Ms. Hunter Galt combines a deep empathy 
with rigorous journalism in her pursuit of wide-ranging topics covering issues and lives from the African continent to the heart of America's cities. She'll be speaking tonight about new news out of Africa, the struggle for democracy and human rights, the book she wrote, and a topic immensely important to all of us who see in Eleanor Roosevelt an immediately relevant model as a crusader for justice and the dignity of all peoples on this anniversary of Declaration of Human Rights. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my huge privilege and wonderful responsibility to introduce you today to Ms. Charlene Hunter-Gold. Thank you. I'm going to keep him. <laughs> Take him back to Africa where he belongs. Thank you, TJ and Anne. I, I am just... Uh, please doesn't quite get it. And even exhilarated doesn't get it, but it is a better word uh, to describe how I feel standing here this evening uh, because I have been welcomed so warmly by this community. I wondered how they escaped my being here all these years because um, I would have come at the drop of a hat had I been invited. And as I said this afternoon, I was so thrilled to see it raining because in Africa, rain is a sign of good fortune and good luck. So hopefully that means that you won't fall asleep while I talk tonight. <laughs> um, I also am exhilarated uh, to be among you at this historic moment in America because we have all shared a moment that many people tell me they never thought would happen in their lifetimes. Um, I wasn't one of those people who thought that. Moreover, I love coming home to America in February. It's Black History Month, and I understand that the black history uh, people among you helped to bring me here. I'm delighted about that. I love Black History Month, although I always sort of thought every day ought to be Black History Day. We shouldn't just have a month. But I'll accept the month. <laughs> the other thing I like about this month is that it's the birth month of both Frederick Douglass and yours truly. And there is nothing I enjoy more than celebrating my birthday. Speaking of which, I used to think that you had to be really, really old to have been a witness to history. Now, it's possible that really old has snuck up on me, but that's okay, too, because I come from a long line of people who venerated age, and now living in South Africa, I have earned the distinction just by being, shall we say, older, of being referred to by my younger friends like TJ as an elder. It's a very respectful title. What can I say? If it's good enough for Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, it's good enough for me. So today I would like to invite you to join me on a little journey of celebration as I recall three revolutions in my lifetime. Now the Secret Service in here, sit down. I'm not talking about armed revolution. Three revolutions in my lifetime, and I trace them from the victories over Jim Crow 
and apartheid and to the triumph of Barack Obama. It is again exhilarating to be back in an America that hasn't seen the kind of energy I'm seeing these days and commitment, especially among the young people since the days of the civil rights movement and maybe not even then. For if I can quote a South, Af a South African politician from another context, um, there has never been a time like this. It is also exhilarating. You see, I happen to like that word, <laughs> exhilarating. It makes you breathe when you say it. But it's also exhilarating to be here at this college which proudly bears the mantle of civil and human rights bequeathed to it by Eleanor Roosevelt. Dare I say, it's almost mystical to be having the experiences I've been having in the past few days and weeks, and indeed as I look back over my lifetime. It's like you can really, literally connect the dots, as John Lewis has said, describing the trail from the civil rights movement to now. For what is one is able to see clearly is all of the values that helped us overcome were truly transcendent and transformative. Although when I was asked about this moment on the news hour the night before the inauguration, uh, I used the word transcendental. Well, that too. I'm still trying to figure out if I use the right word, but I'm sure there's somebody out here who will tell me when the time comes. <laughs> And when Barack Obama pays homage to the shoulders that he stands on, as you frequently heard him do, surely in that pantheon are people like Eleanor Roosevelt, who blazed the trail that Martin Luther King walked so Obama could run and our children could fly, as the saying goes. It has always been uplifting to be among those who took stands in various ways for freedom and justice and equality, the cornerstone of civil and human rights. And to be among those who hold high the torch today is inspiring as well as uplifting. I think of myself as having been fortunate, if not blessed, to have witnessed up close three revolutions in my lifetime. As a participant and an observer in one, and as a passionate observer in the other two. So I'm going to briefly talk about how each of these revolutions has fueled my path both personally and professionally, and how each has also enabled me to see both the promise and the possibilities of revolution, peaceful revolution, that is, as well as the challenges that call for constant engagement and vigilance on the part of people who brought about those revolutions and the people who benefited from them and today who are passing the torch to a new generation even as they still walk in that light. I speak, of course, in the first instance of the American Civil Rights Revolution, which brought America closer to keeping one of her fundamental promises and principles, that all men and women are created equal to be judged not by the color of their skins, but the content of their character. It was this revolution that enabled me to begin what I call, after Zora Neale Hurston, my journey to the horizons. Strengthened by my faith and the faith and courage of my friends in the movement, 
to walk through mobs threatening to kill me, displaying before my eyes the kind of hatred I had never known. It is this revolution that led me ultimately to realize my dream from childhood of becoming a real life Brenda Starr. Now, some of you, TJ, are too young. TJ's smiling, but he doesn't know who I'm talking about. <laughs> but some of you do. Brenda Starr was a blue-eyed, redhead, comic strip heroine of the Daily Flash, and she traveled all over the world reporting the most amazing stories and meeting the most amazing men. <laughs> But if Brenda Starr were here tonight, I would say, eat your heart out, girl. <laughs> it was my awareness of our victory and of what it brought so many of us that made me more confident than most that Barack Obama could indeed become president of the United States. I had watched the progression of folks like myself who broke down barriers in schools and in public places who sat in at lunch counters as police dogs nipped at their heels and did worse, and police batons crashed down on their heads, who rode buses on dangerous journeys and went to jail without bail, vowing to stay until freedom rang. And once they brought down the walls of injustice and inhumanity, I watched as they took their places in local and state and national government and into the international arena as one who marched in the mean streets of the South became America's ambassador to the world. I had also watched other progressions exemplified by the path that someone like Vernon Jordan walked. First, walking me through the screaming white mobs as a young law clerk. Then later on, walking himself into the top law firms in America and into the meeting rooms of some of America's most prestigious boards. And he made sure that he was not alone, reaching back and reaching out, counseling the waves of young black people who followed in his footsteps into Wall Street and into corporate America. So why wouldn't I be confident that we would have a black president in our lifetime? It's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. But it was a moment I needed to see. And so on the night of November 3rd, I flew 16 hours from Johannesburg to Atlanta, Georgia, to be with friends who had walked the same path I had walked to end segregation in the state and ultimately in the South. For I knew that an Obama victory would resonate with them in a different way from other Americans, even those Americans who were celebrating the victory. It was a moment when they could finally yield the torch and pass it on to a generation it believed would hold that torch high. And in the highly emotional moments from then until Barack Obama took the oath of office, I had flashbacks of my second historical witness to the victorious revolution in South Africa, which had captured so much of America's attention and energy. Standing among the throngs of people on the mall the day Barack Obama took the first oath of office, <laughs> as much as I inhaled that moment, I had space left to think of the night the African National Congress triumphed in the first ever all-race election in 1994. 
Several hundred people had assembled in this ballroom in downtown um, Johannesburg. And at that time, it was the place to see everybody who was anybody, including Nelson Mandela, who just would casually walk through the lobby on the way to some meeting or other. And the place my NewsHour crew and I had ensconced ourselves in the days leading up to the election. On that night, I had already done my satellite broadcast to the United States, talking about the ANC's historic victory and the mood in the ballroom where several hundred people had gathered to celebrate. At that point, the streets outside the hotel were virtually empty. But after I, we had folded up our equipment and were about to head downstairs to the party in the ballroom, one of my producers came running up to me shouting that I had to go out and look down from the top floor window. And when I did, I saw an amazing sight. Hundreds, thousands of people had materialized on these empty streets as if they had miraculously risen out of the dust. I mean, it was truly, did I use that word right? Transcendental. It was one of those moments that you just couldn't believe what you were seeing. It was miraculous. And Yet, there was no noise. They were all standing quietly as if in some moment of reverence. So I quickly phoned my producer in Washington and I told him he had to buy us another satellite. This was a moment that could not go unrecorded. And despite some momentary hesitation, it costs a lot to rent a satellite. And remember, we were public television. <laughs> My editor agreed so quickly to pay the extra money that I had no time to prepare a script. Instead, I just walked out once they told me the satellite was up, and I ad-libbed almost breathlessly describing how it felt to be witnessing this moment. I was afraid I was going to cry, but I got through it without that. There had never been up to that moment a time like that. And so it was on the day on the mall in Washington, D.C., when I turned from the seat I had secured early that morning and witnessed the mass of humanity behind me as well as all around me. And again, I thought about how both these moments had been made possible by people who held fast to the unwavering, their unwavering faith and belief in freedom and justice and human rights and human dignity. The kind President Obama spoke about in his remarks two days at the, two days ago at the breakfast uh, prayer breakfast breakfast he attended in Washington, and in 1994, after Nelson Mandela was sworn in as president, he saw to it that the country's new constitution was built on the principles of freedom and justice and human rights, a constitution that went further than any in the world almost in establishing what constitutes a human right. In its Bill of Rights, and some of you from South Africa will know this probably by heart, South Africa affirmed the democratic values of human dignity, equality, and freedom, but also the freedom of expression, association, assembly, opinion, belief, religion, and movement. And it went even further, establishing such rights as access to food and water, housing, health care, social service, education, and the special rights of children. It also became one of the only countries in the world establishing the rights of gays and lesbians. 
But South Africa also broke new ground in its constitution, establishing its rights around the environment and development, culture, and language. And the good news is that in many cases, South Africa's young democracy has lived up to its promise, although it has a long way to go in some of the others, as even in an older democracy like this one. For example, I covered one of the first gay marriages in the country, and the South African media, one of the freest on the continent, covered others. Government grouses and gripes, as governments do all over the world, about the media. But so far, there's been none of the kind of censorship that existed in the apartheid era, when the only view reported in the mainstream media was that of the white minority government. As in all democracies, including this one, there are challenges to rights and freedoms, and in South Africa at the moment, a potentially big test is looming over freedom of expression as the current president of the ruling African National Congress Party, Jacob Zuma, has sued a cartoonist over a cartoon depicting him unzipping his pants about to rape Lady Justice, with a few of his supporters holding her down, shouting, go for it, boss. The appearance of this cartoon comes against the backdrop of Zuma's rape trial in 2005. He was acquitted of the crime, but not necessarily in the court of public opinion. Zuma has sued the cartoonist, and as I re recently reported on NPR, there was an exchange that Zuma and the cartoonist had on a popular radio talk show. Zuma, who hopes to become president of the country later this year, was being interviewed on a wide range of issues when he was asked about the cartoon lawsuit. When Zuma answered that he was indeed suing the cartoonist because he thought what he was doing was quite vulgar, the cartoonist called into the program and challenged him. He said, I am doing exactly what journalists and what cartoonists and what satirists do in a democratic society. We should respect the office. We do not have to respect the person who occupies the office. We should be able to attack them. We should be able to make fun of them. The cartoonist then accused Zuma of paying lip service to freedom of expression, but then suing him. But then Zuma responded by saying, that can't be right. You are invading my own dignity. That's why I'm taking you on. I then reported some of the debate going on among media analysts and editors, some of whom thought the cartoon was in bad taste, but that bad taste, argued one, is a part of an artist's creativity. While others on the other side of the debate argued that bad tastes and legal are not necessarily the same. This would be a good academic discussion, wouldn't it? At some point, the court will decide, and if I had to guess, I would guess it would rule in favor of the cartoonist. And this will be an important ruling given South Africa's influence on the rest of the continent where freedom of the press is gaining more converts, though it is still the case that the government controls most of the electronic media and still much of print on the continent. But journalists, especially those in the new younger democratic societies all over the continent, are beginning to insist on their place in entrenching democracy, insisting that if there is to be an African renaissance, they must play a role. Even in Zimbabwe, 
where the state imposes severe restrictions and has shut down most of the free media, journalists are doing heroic service in getting out the truth about what's going on in their country, or at least a different point of view from what the government would like, about which more later. But let me finish on South Africa, which despite its commitment so far to freedom of the press, nevertheless has miles, if not millions of miles to go in meeting other constitutional guarantees, especially those guaranteeing the right of basic human services. While millions of South Africans have indeed been lifted out of poverty, put in houses, provided with water and electricity, millions of others are still mired in the same heart-wrenching conditions they lived in under apartheid, absent the intent to demean. And the vast majority of its black children are not being educated for the kind of modern society South Africa is and increasingly will become more of later. Nor are far too many of their black teachers themselves crippled by the second-class education imposed on black South Africans by the white minority regime aimed at keeping them in their place. And this state of affairs exists as South Africa has reached a critical turning point in its still young democracy. I mean, it was only 15 years ago. The ruling African National Congress, the venerable party that fought for years and finally liberated the country, has now split in two following the unceremonious dismissal of the president, Thabo Mbeki, with only six months to go in his tenure. Disaffected members of the ruling party blamed Mbeki for centralizing power, for being remote from the masses of the country's people, and for failing to attend to the needs of the majority poor. Now, a new party is gaining momentum. It calls itself the Congress of the People, or COPE, fueled in part by a new coalition of what I call the Coalition of the Disaffected. ANC members who resented how the party unceremoniously dismissed Mbeki. And yet it is attempting to distinguish itself in, a part, in part by an appeal to inclusiveness. At its first national conference in December, it, its leadership spoke in most of South Africa's 11 languages, including Afrikaans, and put a white South African businesswoman in the leadership troika. But while the new party has already enrolled some 400,000 paid up members, at least that's what they say, it contrasts with 600,000 the ANC has enrolled in the past 15 years. So many of the country's voters are taking a wait-and-see attitude, not least waiting to see how both parties address the so far unfulfilled promises of its constitution. There are voices being raised in the country now because of many of the things that are being said on both sides that raise the specter of the possibility of violence. And there are those who look at the Kenyan example and say, you know, it only takes two small things to tilt the balance in a country, yet it can take two generations to fix the devastation it has caused. You may recall that Kenya was once the poster child of African democracy when it erupted in ethnic violence last year. In my own reporting of the Kenyan story, however, I went to Kenyans both in and out of the country who were intimately familiar with its history and found that the waves of rage unleashed after the disputed election that brought President Mwai Kibaki back for his second term in office revealed an open sore 
of a not-so-secret secret. The fabric of the multiracial, multi-ethnic society stitched together since independence from colonial rule 44 years ago had been fraying at the seams for years. The tatters created by the unkind cuts of long-standing, unattended grievances, simmering ethnic tensions, government corruption, and glaring disparities in public resources. In short, the failure of democracy to keep its promises. Now, of course, we who were here in 1968 remember something similar happening in our own country. But even with its myriad problems, South Africa has made a huge contribution to democratic values on the continent. And despite his performance on AIDS in Zimbabwe, which I think is the only thing Americans hear about Thabo Mbeki, Mbeki introduced the notion of an African renaissance and was, in fact, in the forefront of a new vision and a new direction for the entire continent as one of the key architects of something called NEPAD, the New Partnership for African Development. And it has a lot of good things in it, not least um, respect for uh, women, the empowerment of women, uh, fiscal responsibility, and so on. The empowerment of women is actually, I don't know how it got in there, but it's actually a critical part of this new, what I call new rules of the road, because women in Africa are the poorest of the poor, they're the most AIDS infected, and the least educated. And yet I believe the salvation of Africa lies with empowering its women, because they say if you educate a man in Africa, you educate an individual. If you educate a woman, you educate a nation, and I've seen that. And when I was in Somalia, a few years ago, this was under the George Bush, Daddy Bush regime. <laughs> when it was being challenged in a different way than today, women were insisting then that they be included in the peace talks. They told me that in the old days, they got the men to stop fighting by walking onto the battlefield and marrying the enemy. Well, <laughs> That might have been a part of Somali urban legend, but I love the story, especially the attitude of the woman telling it. <laughs> Meanwhile, while Africans want to run their own show, they realize that with few exceptions, most countries on the continent are too poor to go it alone. Therefore, they set up a bargain with the West. Africans get control of their political and economic houses in exchange for help with the resources to build adequate housing, create jobs that erase the reality of some 315 million Africans, one in two, living on less than a dollar a day. They also have committed to implementing programs aimed at stemming the spread of AIDS and other diseases and providing food to feed the legions of hungry to make available education that in the end will lead Africans to be able to feed and clothe themselves. At the same time, they set up what they call a groundbreaking mechanism that departs from the long-standing post-colonial rule of non-interference in border, across borders. That's called the peer review mechanism and eminent African persons evaluate countries on those goals. The process is voluntary, I don't know exactly now how many, some of you in here might know, how many African countries have signed up, but as far as I know, at least 26 have signed up. 
though only a few have completed the process. But the number a year or so ago that has signed up for this process represented 70% of the African population. Now, it could be said that this follows on from 1977 when the then Secretary General Kofi Annan issued an historic challenge at a summit at what was then called the Organization of African Unity. And he wrote, he said, the conflicts that have dis disfigured our continent have all too often been accompanied by massive human rights violations. I am aware of the fact that some view this concern as a luxury of the rich countries for which Africa is not ready. I know others treat it as an imposition, if not a plot, by the industrialized West. And Anand said, I find these thoughts truly demeaning of the yearning for human dignity that resides in every African heart. Do not African mothers weep when their sons or daughters are killed or maimed by agents of repressive rule? Are not African fathers saddened when their children are unjustly jailed or tortured? Is not Africa as a whole impoverished when even one of these brilliant voices is silenced? So I say this to you, my brothers and sisters, said Anand, that human rights are African rights. And I call upon you to ensure that all Africans are able fully to enjoy them. Let us work together with the UN to develop good governance and respect for the rule of law. When we succeed, Africa will have taken a great step forward. Now, that was, what did I say, 1977. And since then, there has been both progress and setbacks in Africa's response. But 10 years later, in 2007, the successor to the OAU, the African Union, at its summit approved the African Charter on Democracy, Elections, and Governance, a great advance on the 1981 Charter on Human and People's Rights. And the old rule of autocratic big men today is more the exception than the rule. Despite the ongoing violence in places like Somalia and Darfur, the volatility in Chad and areas of Congo, still simmering tensions in Ivory Coast and the Central African Republic and Northern Uganda, and probably some of you could name a few other places, but most of the wars in Africa that have sapped the continent's resources and swelled the ranks of the poor and diseased have drawn to a close. Increasingly, the call for democracy is being answered with human rights on the agenda. Countries like Congo, Liberia, Rwanda, Tanzania have all joined the democratic column. The young democracies on the continent, however, need all the help they can get to ensure the dreams of an African renaissance are fulfilled and sustained because it's not there yet. They also need to succeed to demonstrate to the recalcitrant leaders and their governments that the old way is no way anymore, even and especially if such recalcitrant leaders as 85-year-old Robert Mugabe, who has ruled the country since independence in 1980, insists on staying on. But the sort of good news, I, I think it's sort of maybe perhaps good news, is that in the last few days, Mugabe's government and the opposition movement for democratic change appear to finally agree on the formation of a government of national unity after a disputed election a few months ago 
in which most observers agreed the Mugabe claim of victory was unwarranted, but made possible through fraud and violence. But it's still breath-holding time for those who watch Zimbabwe closely and many who doubt that the, that the coalition will hold. For this is no Lincoln-esque, Obama-like type team of rivals. This is a team of rivals born out of one of the country's ugliest reigns of terror with the instruments of state used against the opposition and its supporters, mostly defenseless men, women, and children who want nothing more than to live the kind of life their liberators who were led by Robert Mugabe in those days once fought for and promised. The deteriorating situation in Zimbabwe led me a few months ago to write a piece for the blog that I contribute to called The Root, beginning it with that old saying, it's always darkest just before it gets pitch black. <laughs> it has been one of the most wrenching stories to chronicle seeing the breadbasket of Africa become its basket case. I've interviewed South Africa, uh, in South Africa young men who'd been recruited to join something called the Green Bombers. Young men Mugabe claimed to have recruited to teach good citizenship, but who in reality told me they had been taught to kill enemies of the state, which sometimes included members of their own family. I also interviewed young women who in their desperation had crossed the crocodile-infested Zambezi River, only having escaped the crocodiles to be brutally raped by predators on the other side. One of them told me about her friend who was murdered because the predators told her not to scream, and she screamed, and therefore was murdered before her eyes, before her friend's eyes. The survivor who lived to talk to me also found herself a few months later delivering a baby conceived in that brutality after she arrived in South Africa. An illegal alien who was only able to deliver her baby by borrowing the ID of a sympathetic South African. I also tracked down in a hospital two women who were leaders of the opposition for Movement for Democratic Change, the movement. They had gone to jail when their supporters had been arrested during a rally for which they had a permit, but they too were arrested and tortured. One of them was a 68-year-old grandmother who was so severely tortured that she could not walk. Conditions not only for opposition leaders but for regular Zimbabweans only got worse with ongoing repression, no food on the shelves, worthless money, and finally sickness from cholera with no medicines and therefore deaths, more according to some estimates than the 2000 on record. There's supposed to be some 60,000 who are infected. And cholera, as you know, is something that can be easily treated, but not if you don't have any medicine or any needles in which to, with which to administer the medicine. That's how it goes, isn't it? Mugabe insists that Zimbabwe's problems are all caused by Western sanctions, but few agree. The sanctions are targeted at individual members of the Mugabe government and not the country as a whole. And Western sanctions didn't beat up that 68-year-old grandmother. To be sure, the land question is, is a serious issue that needs to be addressed not only in Zimbabwe, but 
also in South Africa. And there's going to be a conference on the land question sometime later this year. But the question is, was this the way to do it? And that's a debatable proposition. But I don't think there's a whole lot to debate when you look again at a country that was forced from becoming, as I said earlier, the breadbasket into the basket case. However, all of this taking place in Zimbabwe, we hope, is coming to an end. We keep our fingers crossed. This, as Africa's leaders in the region who have committed themselves to human rights, also must do more than pay lip service to human rights. But there are other miles to go before one can breathe a sigh of relief, not least the need to release the dozens of opposition supporters and human rights activists abducted by Zimbabwe's state security agents and held for weeks in unknown locations and now are languishing in filthy, germ-infested prisons that are also ridden with cholera. With cholera. Moreover, at least one African leader, one of the few speaking out against the violence and intimidation of the ruling party during this disputed election, is worried about the precedent of this negotiated agreement. Botswana's president, Suretsi Kama, was quoted in the New York Times recently saying that allowing leaders to keep power through negotiated deals after fraught-ridden elections, as in Kenya last year and now in Zimbabwe, sets a terrible precedent. U.S. national interests for Africa to support those who speak out on behalf of democratic principles for any number of reasons. U.S. national interests is in supporting those people, not least to encourage them, as in the case of Suretsi Kama, to deal with their own human rights issues. But it is also in the U.S. national interest to encourage African democracies, not least because Africa has some 88% of gold reserves, of platinum, global reserves of platinum, 73% of diamonds, 30% of bauxite reserves, 40% of gold, 60% of manganese, and equal amounts of cobalt, not to mention coltan. Can I just ask you this? How many of you in here know what we use coltan for? Raise your hand. Oh, well, you're so smart. How many others? Not many. Well, I'll just tell you this. Your computers wouldn't work if there was no coltan. And Rwanda is one of the countries that has the most coltan in the world. And, moreover, China understands all of that. And China is there without any preconditions such as respect for human rights. Moreover, the U.S. is looking to Africa as an alternative to the troubled Middle East as a, as, a, as a more secure source of oil. West Africa, for example, sits on some 15% of the world's oil, and by 2015, it's estimated will be providing one-fourth of U.S. needs unless Barack Obama could get you to stop using so much oil. But anyway, Ghana, by the way, has just added uh, to its storehouse of minerals and gold and other natural resources a new discovery of oil. So for the United States, African oil is in our national interest as a security issue as much as fighting terrorism, which calls for understanding that U.S. security is tied to the global community. 
And it is important to understand the importance and necessity of uniting to confront new kinds of enemies that have no respect for borders or boundaries or even babies. I might start with the terrorism where clever men are able to use the vulnerability of the poor to prey on them and recruit them into horrific schemes. But I would also continue with the terrorism beyond bombs, the terrorism that drives Africa to the edge, the terrorism of poverty, the terrorism of human rights abuse, the terrorism of diseases like HIV and AIDS and TB and malaria, and more recently, cholera, as we've seen in Zimbabwe, which is now spreading to South Africa because there's so many uh, Zimbabweans fleeing to South Africa for security, they hope. The terrorism also of failing to educate and empower women and girls. The terrorism of ignorance and hopelessness. I would hope that you will insist, those of you in this kind of enlightened community, will insist that you get more of the new news out of Africa. And by new news, I don't mean the goody good news that, that just says everything is wonderful but news that you can use to make intelligent decisions about your own life and your own resources. The good news, the new news of Africa's successes also, so that people like yourselves will not be dissuaded from helping Africa tackle what I call the four Ds, death, disease, disaster, and despair the usual prism through which Africa is presented to audiences like this. For the expectations of Africans, like those among the people of the world, have been raised by this young new president who's being seen as our first global president, in the words of Reverend Joseph Lowry, who delivered the benediction and with whom I shared a news hour program the night before the inauguration. Which brings me back to the third revolution I have witnessed in my lifetime, and that is the revolution that brought Barack Obama to power. A revolution that brings us closer to realizing the dream of that great revolutionary, Martin Luther King Jr., who envisioned a day when people would be judged by the color of their skins, not by the color of their skins, but the content of their character. By the way, I think now, that's another story for another day, but I do have problems with the term colorblind, but we can talk about that later. But Martin Luther King envisioned a day when people would be judged not by the color of their skins, but the content of their character. And as I popped in and out of this country during the campaign season, I remember being awestruck by the turnout of young people and old people and black people and white people and Asian people and Mexican people and people of every description you can think of. And I remember telling the college audiences where I was speaking that I had never seen anything like this since the days of the Civil Rights Movement. Already, President Obama has sent a message about the restoration of respect for human rights, even for those who have violated the human rights of others. This is an important promise to the world and especially to Africa. For tin pot dictators around the continent have used some of America's excesses since 9-11, the violations of human rights, to justify their own behavior. Now, there is hope that America will take away their excuses and maybe help remove some of them too, peacefully, of course.
Barack Obama has also put in place two women who hold out the promise of ensuring that women are a major part of a new American international agenda. And that is most important in Africa, as I told you, where women are the poorest of the poor and the sickest of the sick and the most maltreated in war and in peace. As Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton has already put on record her belief that human rights aren't women's rights, are women's rights, and women's rights are human rights for one and for all. She did this back in 1995 at the Beijing conference. Some of you may have been there. And she said, let us not forget that among those rights are the right to speak freely and the right to be heard. Women must enjoy the rights to participate fully in the social and political lives of their country if we want freedom and democracy to thrive and endure. And in her maiden speech to the United Nations, the new U.S. Ambassador Susan Rice, who once served as Assistant Secretary of State for Africa, appeared to be opening a new chapter in U.S.-U.N. relations, stressing the need for the kind of cooperation lacking in the past eight years, what she described as shared challenges that no single nation can tackle alone, and insisting they require common action based on common purpose and a vision of shared security even when we have differences. In speaking of the global challenges President Obama is committed to, Susan Rice talked of enhancing global peace and security, combating terrorism and proliferation, addressing climate change, preventing genocide, alleviating poverty, and promoting sustainable development, and supporting respect for human rights, democracy, and human dignity. And at the same time, or certainly in the same week, we have Leon Panetta saying that there aren't going to be any more renditions. Well, he sort of qualified that a little bit, but we have to find out what he means by that. But at least the messages that they, signals that they have sent so far about how to prosecute uh, terrorism have been decidedly different from what we've had in the past. These are words, many in the, words and thoughts, many in the world, and Africa in particular, have been waiting to hear as the United Nations has served as the one place where small nations and small voices can be heard through coalition with other small nations and small voices to make them big. In the past, those nations have felt, Africa in particular, the U.S. approach to the world has not understood or cared about the importance of this forum, and by extension them, and will now surely applaud, applaud what appears to be a change of attitude. Susan Rice also sent signals about a possible new attitude towards the International Criminal Court. In the past, the U.S. has vigorously opposed an international court that could prosecute U.S. military and political leaders through a global standard of justice. But while not committing the U.S. yet to take part in the work of the court, Ambassador Rice nevertheless talked about the court in terms of its becoming an important, and these are her words, and credible instrument for trying to hold accountable the senior leadership responsible for atrocities committed in the Congo, Uganda, and Darfur. But even as I watch the rising expectations for this new administration, I have some concerns about the possibility of a crisis of rising expectations. 
The young president keeps trying to prevent a crisis of rising expectations by reminding us day in and day out that there are some difficult days ahead. And I'm reminded in his messages of the mountaintop imagery again of Dr. King, who described how he had reached the mountaintop, but he warned there would be difficult days ahead. And I think in those terms about an old Haitian proverb that goes deyeman geman, which means beyond the mountain, more mountains. <laughs> Yet in the first blush of Obama's victory, the hope he has delivered and the faith he talked about this week is hope that the rest of the world, including Africa, desperately wants to believe in. Hope that America will reclaim the moral high ground and once again elevate the values of human dignity, freedom of justice, and human rights, putting them into practice at home and abroad. And I, too, am hoping to bear witness to still another revolution in my lifetime. I thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.